Well, today we begin our study of the last chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21. Please join me there. In our journey through this fourth gospel, the Gospel of John, we have already discovered one very special meal that Jesus and the disciples enjoyed together. You'll remember that back in John chapter 13 and following. It was that meal which took place in the upper room in Jerusalem on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. It was the last Passover that Jesus and his disciples had together. We sometimes refer to it as the Last Supper. Well, today we look at what was their next meal together, at least what John records for us. It was not a supper, though. It was a breakfast. And this meal was enjoyed by Jesus and a few of the disciples after the crucifixion and resurrection. And instead of a room in Jerusalem, this breakfast took place on the shore of a large lake. Now, to set the stage for this breakfast by the lake, we need to just refresh our memories for a moment on the direction that Jesus had given to his disciples before he was crucified. He had instructed them to return to Galilee after his resurrection and to wait for him there. We find it worded this way in Mark chapter 14. Verse 28, he told them, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. That directive was reinforced then by the angel's report to the women in the empty tomb. That's Mark chapter 16, verse 7. The angel said, go tell his disciples and Peter, he, Jesus, is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they're supposed to go to Galilee. Why there? Why Galilee? Well, it was an important region during the years of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was there that Jesus had done much of his teaching about the kingdom. It's where he performed a, a number of notable Uh, miracles, there were healings, deliverance from demons, the feeding of the 5,000 took place in Galilee. It was on a Galilean hill that Jesus had delivered his great sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It was around the Sea of Galilee that Jesus had called Peter and James and John to leave behind their fishing nets and become fishers of men, as he told them in Matthew chapter 4. After the resurrection, it is probably in Galilee then that Jesus appeared to many people, which the Apostle Paul uh, says, makes a comment about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, he says, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. That was likely in the region of Galilee where that happened. And it was in Galilee that the risen Jesus eventually gave his great commission, Matthew 28, verse 19. Uh, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all uh, the nations. So that is where Jesus told his disciples to gather and to wait for him in the region of Galilee. 
And that is the setting of the chapter we begin today, John chapter 21. Now this chapter does not recount the whole, the entirety of Jesus' final ministry in Galilee after the crucifixion and resurrection, but he is going to look at, John's going to look at, an encounter that took place beside the familiar lake of that name, the Sea of Galilee. That was actually a large lake, what we call the Sea of Galilee. It was known by other names in the Old Testament, in Numbers, in Joshua, uh, each of those books. It makes reference to the Sea of Chinnereth. In Luke chapter 5, it's called Lake Gennesaret, but its most familiar name to us is the Sea of Galilee. So that's where this breakfast in John chapter 21 took place on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was actually a big lake. Now, I mentioned this last Sunday that chapter 21 is called the epilogue of the book. Chapter 1 is the prologue. Chapters 2 through 20 then form the main body of the book, and that means that this final chapter in the epilogue, which John wrote when he composed the rest of the gospel, It serves then, along with chapter 1, as bookends to the Gospel of John. It is the conclusion of the Gospel that John wrote, and it is a fitting conclusion because it it helps us uh, have some answers, at least some level of answers, to some of the issues that might have possibly been raised even as the original readers were reading this book or hearing it read. For example, it's in chapter 21 that we find that Jesus was still going to care for his disciples. Some possibly had questions about that. Could he and would he still care for his followers after he was no longer physically present on the earth as he had been caring for them when he was here? This chapter brings closure to uh, one of the stories in the Gospel of John, the story of Peter. It is in the epilogue that we find that Peter's denial, famous denial of Jesus and his doubting of the resurrection, those issues were not the end of the story in Peter's life. We find that to be true now in John chapter 21. This final chapter even addresses what evidently was a a rumor of that day, a possible false rumor that the apostle John was not going to die before the Lord's return. There's something said in chapter 21 that sheds light on that rumor. This chapter reinforces the truth then of who the beloved disciple is. It's the Apostle John, the author. That becomes even more clear in chapter 21 that he's the beloved disciple. That's how he's referred to himself many times along the way in our study. This chapter explains why John didn't record All the signs that Jesus did, if you look back at John chapter 20, that chapter ended this way in verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John selected particular signs to write about, but he didn't write about all the signs. Why? Well, John chapter 21 gives us a little bit of an answer to that. And finally, just the presence of an epilogue is a, is a, was intended by John to be the balance to the prologue. These two chapters then preserve balance and symmetry of structure. So it's a fitting conclusion to the book. 
Now today, we're just going to look at the first 14 verses, which answer that first question about Jesus' care for his followers. Would he, could he still provide that care for them? Through this event at the seashore, he'll confirm, the Lord will confirm that certainly he was able and did intend to still care for them. So let's look now at this scene in verses 1 to 14. We're going to find a contrast in these 14 verses in this scene, a contrast between two realities. The first one we will call imperfect human ability. And then that will be contrasted to infinite divine sovereignty. So let's look at this Example that comes to us of, number one, imperfect human ability. Verse one, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now, where was he? Was he at the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret or the Sea of Tiberias? And the answer is yes, that's where he was. This is yet another name for that lake. By the time John wrote this book, it had commonly come to be called this, the Sea of Tiberias. This name came from the city, Tiberias, which is on the west side and still on the west side of the shore of the lake. Now, frankly, it's not surprising that having been told to go to Galilee, that Peter and the other disciples would return to this area around the sea because that's where they formerly had worked. It's where Jesus had called them into their Ministry. So that's the where related to this scene, where it takes place. But notice that we're also told something about the when. Verse 1 says, after these things. That's just a general, general phrase that confirms that what we're about to look at, the events, took place after what we studied in chapter 20. It's not a precise phrase. It doesn't indicate exactly how long after the appearance to Thomas that all of this took place, but it does give us the general sequence. So sometime later, sometime after that upper room scenario where uh, Jesus had appeared a second time and manifested himself to Thomas, sometime later, Jesus chose to reveal himself again to at least some of the disciples At the seashore, verse 1 continues, and he manifested himself in this way. After his resurrection, Jesus evidently was not recognizable automatically unless he intentionally manifested himself, unless he intentionally revealed himself. So that's what he did there that morning by the seashore. In his resurrection body, Jesus once again intentionally revealed himself. But that revelation, that manifestation, this incident involved only seven of the disciples. Verse 2 gives them to us. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. This lets us know that Evidently, all the disciples did not travel together as a group when they went to Galilee uh, due to the Lord's instructions to go there. They evidently uh, traveled in small groupings with them arriving, the groupings arriving at various times 
uh, several days after that week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, which they would have stayed in Jerusalem for that. In this grouping, the list of it, Peter is listed first. That's probably because he was the unofficial leader, but yet uh, the recognized leader of the group. And notice that he's given his double name here, Simon, Peter. That is actually common in the Gospel of John to refer to him with both names, Simon, Peter. Thomas is again listed. He's identified the same way as he was in chapter 20 with both his Aramaic and his Greek names. And I told you there that Didymus was like a nickname. It means twin. Thomas had a twin. Nathaniel has not been mentioned since chapter 1. We don't know much about him. And only here is he said to come from Cana, which is where Jesus uh, performed a couple of his miracles. The sons of Zebedee, that means James and John. They have not been identified that way before in the Gospel of John, and that's remarkable because they, James and John and Peter, uh, are portrayed as sort of a threesome uh, amongst the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John. You commonly say them, their three names together like that. And then we find two more disciples. Unfortunately, when they got a copy of the book and looked for their names, they did not make the cut. Two more disciples. Now, perhaps it was Andrew and Philip. We don't know for certain. We do know from chapter 1 that Andrew and Philip had very close ties to Peter and the sons of Zebedee. They always appear elsewhere in connection with the apostles named in this passage. So it could have been Andrew and Philip, but we have no way of identifying them for sure. So this is the group Jesus chose to manifest himself to. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, uh, we find that Jesus not only told them to go to Galilee, but in Matthew 28, 16... He, we actually find that he expected them to go to a mountain in Galilee where they would wait for him. And here they are, obviously not at a mountain, but instead at the lake. Some had tried to make a point out of that. Some commentators, some scholars tried to say that this was wrong on their part. The disciples were not where they were supposed to be. Maybe. That doesn't really seem to be an issue here in this chapter. Uh, at least as far as we can find here in the text, we're not told that. That's a form of conjecture. In any case, this partial group of disciples were together at the Sea of Galilee. We can at least conclude this. They're not as fearful as they were in Jerusalem. They're no longer hiding out in a locked room behind closed doors. They had seen the resurrected Christ. That had encouraged them. That had given them some renewed courage and, and faith. So here they are in Galilee at the seashore. Verse 3 tells us, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. Now once again, there is some conjecture at this point. Some commentators try to make another case, and that is that Peter and his friends were not only in the wrong place, but they were in the wrong for choosing to do this, to go fishing. In other words, they were in disobedience to the Lord by choosing to fish. Perhaps it was a sign that they were abandoning their commission, the commission they had received. Once again, I'll just be honest about it, there really is no specific evidence that that is true. 
Not in the text. More likely, it was just simply better for Peter to use his time usefully than just remain idle while waiting. Plus, the disciples still had to eat. They're thinking about providing for their material needs. So the most reasonable assumption is that they went to the region of Galilee in obedience to the Lord's command. wasn't the only place they would go. They were fishing while they waited for Jesus to appear to them and give them further instructions. Nowhere in the text do we find Jesus rebuking them or saying anything negative to them about that. Nevertheless, we know some things and some things we don't know. In any case, there they are, and they went out in a boat at night. But it was not a successful fishing trip. You ever been on an unsuccessful fishing trip? I like to fish. I fish with some here in our congregation. I asked someone in our congregation recently if they like to fish, and they said, no, they like to catch. There's a difference between fishing and catching. These men were just fishing. It was unsuccessful. Verse 3, they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now, nighttime was generally the best time for fishing. They knew that. These were experienced fishermen. There was nothing unusual about that. They knew how to catch fish. They were good at it. They were skilled at it. They had developed an ability to do this. They weren't perfect in it, but they knew what to do, how to catch fish, but not on this trip. They didn't catch any. Those disciples were experiencing what happens sometimes in life. They were experiencing the reality that their uh, the reality that their limited human ability and experience and knowledge was no guarantee of success in some way. In other words, in their failure as something they were actually very good at, we can say this: they experienced the reality of their inability to depend solely on themselves, which is what we're prone to do. So though there really isn't any clear evidence that these men were abandoning their call to serve the gospel just because they were fishing for their food, it is evident that they could not put their ultimate trust in their own wisdom. They could not put their ultimate trust in their own skill, their own experience, their own abilities, because no human faculty, no human ability is perfect and fail-safe. Every ability we have falls under this category of imperfect human ability. However, they were about to be reminded where they could put their trust. Here's the second reality in this text. Number two, infinite divine sovereignty. We find a wonderful example here of infinite divine sovereignty. And there are two expressions of that sovereignty in our text. We have, first of all, an expression of God's sovereign power. God's sovereign power. Verse 4, but when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, it is possible that this is one of those instances when the disciples were kept from recognizing the resurrected Christ. That did happen. We have an example of that of Luke 24, verse 16, Jesus kept someone from recognizing him. Could have been that, or it may have just merely been because it was so early in the morning, light was dim, and it was impossible in the dimness to 
identify this figure on the beach. Whatever the reason, they did not at first recognize Jesus. So after that useless night of fishing, these disappointed disciples were in the process now, evidently of rowing back to shore when Jesus, waiting on the beach, called out to them. Verse 5, so Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? Now, the word that Jesus used to call out to them, this address, children, was a general term of, of address. It, it was used in a similar way that we use our English word guys, sort of in a generic sense. Hey, guys. And the term rendered fish is interesting. It's only found here in the New Testament. It, it's, its literal meaning just meant a little bit. It would be uh, something like our, our term tidbit. But in the Jewish culture, a little bit to eat was usually fish, a little bit of fish. So over time, the expression came to mean that, a little bit of fish. But technically, this is what Jesus called out to them. Hey, guys, you really didn't even catch a a little bit, did you? Well, still not recognizing Jesus and not really wanting to get into a discussion about their miserable night with a stranger... They gave only a short response in verse 5. They answered him, no. Well, in contrast to what they had just experienced, the limit of their human knowledge and their human ability, Jesus was about to demonstrate his own power, his own sovereign power and omniscience. Verse 6, and he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast... And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. I've been fishing a lot of times, have some good memories, never one like this. Now, those men were just like most fishermen today. I mean, if the fish don't seem to be biting, you sort of watch what other people are doing. And maybe somebody else in the boat or somebody on the shore or in another boat says, hey, I think the fish are biting over there. Why don't you cast your line over there? We're desperate. We'll try it over there. So in this situation that early morning, these disciples were like that. They were not against at least trying something different. And when they did what this stranger suggested, their net landed in the midst of a great school of fish so big that they could not even manage to haul the catch into the boat. Now, where'd the fish come from? Well, Jesus could have created that school of fish if he wanted to. Or he could have just known in his omniscience where the fish were and where they weren't. Either way, you have an illustration of the sovereignty of God in action. So on one hand, in his sovereignty... Fish have been kept away from the disciples. God's sovereignty there. And then suddenly the Lord miraculously miraculously intervened to cause success. By the way, Peter had experienced a different manifestation of Jesus' sovereignty in this regard on another occasion, still involving fish. 
In Luke chapter 5, I'll read several verses there if you want to follow along, starting in verse 4, Jesus was teaching and he, he got into a boat and pushed off from the shore there and was teaching from the boat. Here's what it says in Luke 5 verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, this was another occasion when they were impressed, I'm sure, with the imperfection of their skill. In verse 5, it says, Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I'll do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. So there's the group of disciples in more than one boat and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And then the commentary is this in verse 9, because amazement had seized him and all his companions. Yet here we are in John chapter 21, and we're seeing that in spite of that, that previous experience that happened before the crucifixion, still this time they weren't connecting dots. They still did not recognize Jesus. Perhaps it was due to their exhaustion, their frustration, or like I said, just the dimness of the murky pre-dawn light that early morning. We find out in a moment, verse 8, that the boat was about 100 yards from shore. Maybe that figured in. Most of them, the majority of them, weren't connecting any dots, could not figure out who that stranger was except for one. One of them figured out who the man was, verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, there it is again, John referring to himself, said to Peter, it's the Lord. That's John. John was the only one who reasoned with some insight there that only the Lord could have this kind of supernatural power. Only the Lord could have this kind of supernatural sovereign knowledge. So John exhibits some insight. Peter, however, exhibited something different. Once again, we find him doing what he was known for, quick, impulsive actions. If Peter was alive today, when he's in line at the checkouts at Walmart or the grocery store, he is going to buy all those impulse items that are there. That's why they put them there. For impulse decisions, he would buy it all. I mean, no sooner had John exclaimed, it's the Lord... Then Peter did this in verse 7. So when Peter heard, Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. This was probably common for them to do this, especially in the warm spring season. They would strip down to their loincloths and to do the hard work of fishing, but that's likely the case here. But as soon as the identity of the stranger registered in Peter's mind, he quickly put the normal outer wrapping back on and he dove in, swimming with all of his might to the shore. He was overwhelmed with this intense desire to be with Jesus, so overwhelmed that he could not wait for the boat to reach the shore. 
This certainly was a different reaction by Peter than on that prior occasion that I just read from Luke chapter 5. Remember what I read on that occasion? Peter recognized the holiness and deity of the Lord and he fell to his knees, it said in Luke 5 verse 8. He fell and, and he begged Jesus to leave him. He recognized the holiness. He did the only thing reasonable, confessing his sin, confessing his unworthiness. But now in John 21, it's totally different. He responded in a completely different manner, swimming with all of his might to get to the shore as quickly as possible. What changed in Peter's life? I mean, had he come to rethink himself? Had he come to, over the intervening months, to maybe realize he was not so great a sinner after all? No, not that. He had denied the Lord. The answer is that Peter had learned more about God's grace. We saw that even in chapter 20, when the resurrected Christ appeared miraculously in that room. He materialized in that room where the disciples were there hiding out behind locked doors. And Jesus so graciously dealt with them and didn't greet them with terrifying words of judgment or or words of rebuke, but he, he even pronounced a blessing on them, peace be with you. He graciously directed their attention to the wounds in his hands and his side. I'm just saying on this occasion, Peter's thinking differently. He had no embarrassment. He had no fear. He just wanted intimate fellowship with the Lord. That's Peter. Meanwhile, the other disciples, they're rowing like crazy, struggling, trying to get to the shore. Verse 8, but the other disciples came in the little boat. For they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. They're just towing this full net behind them. And keep in mind, this is obviously eyewitness testimony. John was there. John's in the boat rowing, helping to get the fish to shore. Well, whether it was Peter swimming to the shore or the disciples rowing to the shore... Once they arrived, they all found the same thing, that Jesus had anticipated their hunger. He anticipated their needs, and he was caring for them. So now what we find is an example of God's sovereign provision. Not only his sovereign power was manifested in all of this, but second, his sovereign provision. Verse 9, so when they got out on the land... They saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Can't you just smell that? It smells so good. What an amazing scene. As their risen Lord in his glorified body, here he is still caring for them, still serving them. He met their tiredness and their frustration that night with a hot breakfast A.W. Pink makes this comment. Even in his resurrection glory, he was not unmindful of their physical needs, ever thoughtful, ever compassionate for his own. The Savior here showed his toiling disciples that he cared for their bodies as well as their souls. So while they were here cleaning fish, preparing the fish they just caught, Jesus already had some fish ready for them to eat. Where did he get that fish? Where did he get the bread, you might ask? 
Well, keep in mind what happened back in John chapter 6. Jesus had miraculously created enough fish and bread to feed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children. I told you at that time the, the crowd was probably between fifteen to 20,000 mouths to feed. If he could do that, I think he could certainly create a small amount of fish here to feed these disciples. In addition to what he was cooking, Jesus did tell them that they could add to the breakfast some of what they just caught. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. Add it to the fire here. And then the story links us up again with Peter. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. That's different than that other occasion, you see. So here we have Peter. I mean, he's obviously a, a strong man. He's, he's helping the others pull the net up on the shore. And they have 153 fish. Now, more than one commentator have tried to determine what symbolism here is found in the number 153. So I'm going to tell you what this number represents. It's how many fish they caught. That's all it is. There is nothing in the text to indicate that the author had symbolism in mind. They counted their fish after catches like this. Why? Because they had to know how to appropriately divide up the catch amongst them. At one time, this had been their livelihood. But the sheer quantity does tell us something, just how well the Lord can provide for the needs of his people and the power that he has and the, the knowledge and wisdom that he has and the care and love that he has for his people. In fact, Jesus goes on to invite them to enjoy the meal and, and to enjoy the full fellowship with him in verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come sit down over here with me. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? knowing that it was the Lord. This is interesting how it's worded in the Greek when it says they didn't venture. It's literally what we would say, they didn't dare ask him any more questions. They were just astounded by the whole thing. So they suppress any lingering uneasiness they had, any confusion. They just refrained from demanding any explanations. They just sat down and ate. Now, Jesus knew the reserve of these men who had been so close to him. He knew how overwhelmed they were even to accept his invitation. So he even goes one step beyond that. Another loving action here, verse 13. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And the fish likewise. He serves them. He went to them to reassure them to reassure them that he did care for them and he would always meet their needs. Now, John doesn't give us any details of what happened you know, during the meal while it was going on. We're going to see next time in verse 15 that John picks up the narrative there and that famous interaction between Jesus and Peter. We can look forward to that next time. But for now, he just simply concludes this section with a summary fact about Jesus' appearances. Verse 14. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples 
after he was raised from the dead. Just something literary here to point out to you. If you look back at verse 1, after these things, Jesus manifested himself. Verse 14, this is now the third time that Jesus manifested himself to the disciples. That was an intentional uh, writing technique by the Apostle John there. It's called an inclusio. It sets off and ends this particular section with some of the same terminology. He says it's the third time that Jesus has done this, but he's only talking about the appearances to the disciples. He's leaving out the appearance to Mary Magdalene. The disciples were not there for that. But two in chapter 20, twice in chapter 20, and now this one, the third one in chapter 21. Well, imperfect human ability, what a contrast that is to infinite divine sovereignty. Granted, it's sometimes a challenge to determine how a a story like this, an inspired account that did happen, the narrative portion of Scripture, how that applies to us today in some cases. But I think this account of the breakfast by the lake can actually be a source of great encouragement to us in two different ways. Here's the first one. We ought to be encouraged here by the reminder of the kind of people that the Lord calls to himself to be his followers, the kind of people that he calls to serve him. I mean, he's able to use any kind of sinner. He's able to use weak sinners, doubting sinners, people who fail. He's able to use any type of sinner to advance his kingdom. And there's a good reason he uses people like that. You know what it is? It's because there's no other kind of people. You see, we can all say exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah 6 when he had that great vision of the Lord, which the gospel tells us it was a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ there, the second member of the Godhead. In Isaiah 6, he is overwhelmed with the holiness of the Lord, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, and I live with sinners. We can say that. We should frequently ponder what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not. It's literally, he's chosen the are not things, the are not ones, so that he may nullify the things that are. Why? Verse 29 says, so that no man may boast before God. We even take comfort in this, something more personal by the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, the conclusion about his thorn in the flesh that was such a struggle for him in his life, and it it didn't change. He prayed that God would change his circumstance, and God said no, but gave him grace to deal with it. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, power is perfected in weakness. Verse 10, personally, he says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. So let me just ask you, Have you ever been in a situation, had a moment when you've been 
overwhelmed with the realization of your own weakness? Have you ever been overwhelmed with the realization of your own imperfect human ability? Have you ever failed in any way? Have you ever come to the end of your human knowledge and ability and your experience? Well, then just remember that your failure or your weakness or the fact that you feel like at times you're insignificant, you feel like that if you were listed in that verse with those other disciples, you'd be there at the end, you know, two other disciples, there were some others there, I'm in that group, the insignificant ones. If any of that applies to you, then just remember that none of that is the end of the story to what God is doing in you and through you. The story's not over yet. Again, just think about the original disciples that were in that list. The list of names is headed up by somebody who famously denied the Lord. Thomas is listed there, this man who was determined in his pessimistic disbelief. There's this apparently very quiet figure that we don't know much about, Nathaniel. The sons of Zebedee were also sons of thunder. They were combative personalities. And two others who are such background figures that they don't even get their names mentioned. Yet they all had something in common. All cleansed of their sins by Christ's atoning death. All renewed by faith in their resurrected Lord. And God was planning to greatly use this ragtag group of men. Just as he still uses weak and frail and faulty people today. So the presence of these names in John 21 ought to encourage us because they bear testimony to God's sustaining grace. These names bear testimony to Christ's great preserving mercy. Be encouraged by that. And second, I think we ought to be encouraged here by the reminder that God is in control of all aspects of our lives. That's encouraging because we don't have control of all aspects of our lives. We don't have control of any aspect of our lives. As we noted, these disciples were men who were skilled. They were experienced in fishing, and yet they did not have ultimate control over what happened that night, over anything, but the Lord did. So regardless of whether these men were right or wrong in going fishing, it's not even the main point. What we do have here is a great example, a great illustration of God's sovereignty. So take encouragement in this. Take encouragement in the fact that God is sovereign over everything, whether it's fishing or what we do at our jobs and the results there or our ministry in your family when it comes to family issues or financial issues or let's broaden it, all the issues in the world at large. God is sovereign over everything. Now, there's a great tension we find in Scripture, and we we leave that tension alone because God wants it there in Scripture. It's the tension between our responsibility and God's sovereignty. Scripture is clear that we are to do our part in everything. We're to make evaluations about situations. We are to then make decisions. We are to take action steps. But we do it remembering that God is the one who is ultimately in charge. 
We do it remembering that he's the one whose purposes are always being carried out in everything that's happening. I think about Proverbs 16, 9 sometimes when I'm making decisions and evaluating things and maybe even perplexed about what's best to do. I think of Proverbs 16, 9, the mind of man plans his way. It doesn't say we shouldn't do that. The mind of man plans his way, but what else does it say? The Lord directs his steps. Take comfort in that. James chapter 4 is the quintessential New Testament picture of the same reality. James 4, verses 13 through 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. It doesn't say you shouldn't say that. It doesn't say we should never make plans to go to such and such a city or to make a profit or whatever. But it does give you this caution. Yet, just reminding you of something, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You go on the fishing trip, but you don't know what you're going to catch. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say this, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Then there's a word of caution. We're not careful about this. He says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So yes, on one hand, we need to do our best in everything we attempt to do, but we're always keeping in mind something, that God is the divine editor. I think of it that way sometimes, but even that has to be cautiously explained. I I do editing. I've edited for other people. I edit my own material, at least I try to. When you're editing or grading papers in the seminary and you're you're making some corrections, that kind of editing or editing for somebody else something they've written, that's always a reaction to something that they've done, trying to fix it. So when I think of God as the divine editor, it doesn't mean that. God is not just merely reacting to you and to us and to what we do and trying to fix things. It doesn't mean that. He's more accurately understood as the divine writer. I mean, he's directing all things according to his perfect will. And when his, in his directing, he loves orchestrating everything so as to put himself on display. He puts on display his grace. In another circumstance, it might be his comfort that he puts on display. Or he might put on display his wisdom or his power. He's all those things all the time. But he loves to put them on display for us. So think about that situation that we think hasn't worked out. We say that, you know, it just didn't work out. That's only by our definition. God never says that. It's still working. Not, it's still working out. In fact, from the human perspective, if from our side it seems something hasn't worked out, that doesn't even automatically mean that it was a mistake. It's just evidence of God's sovereign working. He works. And so as we 
carry out our plans, we're learning then a great lesson. We're learning more of what it means to depend totally on him. There is a limit to our imperfect human ability. There is no limit to his divine, sovereign power and provision. We must learn that answer over and over, and sometimes he's orchestrating things so that we're being reminded of that. We depend on him. We need him. And as he's orchestrating all things to put himself on display, you can also be encouraged by this. His provision for you is guaranteed all along the way. All along the way to your appointed end. We forget that sometimes. We have an appointment with death. I don't know when your appointment is. I don't know when mine is. God knows. And God is going to provide what you need all along the way to get you to that point. Whether it's food, money, medical help, whatever. It's all working to get you to that point. His provision is guaranteed. Nothing will change that because he's a sovereign God. So take comfort, be encouraged that God is completely sovereign, but be encouraged that he is completely good as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account that by your spirit you chose to put this account in the gospel of John so that we would be encouraged So we would be encouraged once again to think rightly about you and your ways, but rightly about ourselves as well. So that we would be constantly aware that we are dependent upon you, but also aware that you have promised to be faithful to your people. You will care for us according to your perfect sovereign plans. Father, I do pray for anyone here who cannot say that they know you as Father because they don't know the Son the eternal son. They cannot say that he is theirs and that they are his. I pray you would bring them to put their trust in Christ alone so their sins will be forgiven and so that they can then have the joy of knowing that you are directing all their steps. In Christ's name.